Welcome to Rates and Barrels, presented by Tops. Check out Tops Project 70, celebrating 70 years of Tops baseball cards. Derek Van Riper here with Britt Giroli and Eno Saris on this episode. Please, it's Eno Baller from now on. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> I'm jealous of all those guys' names, man. Oh, <laughs> the, the hardest names. Project. <laughs> Dude, some serious names on that list. Dude, Eno Baller. Love that. Uh, Do you think that's on his birth certificate? Do you think it says Ben Baller on his gift certificate? <laughs> yeah. That would be pretty sweet if it did. <laughs> it would be. We were looking for a nickname for Brit a while back. I think we landed on Blaze Giroli. Is that what we kind of decided on? We never formally Blaze. pushed that in, but that was the clubhouse leader, I think, at the time. Yeah, I think so. I think even just like Blaze G just sounds pretty like <laughs> legit, mm, right? Nice. Giroli is just so long and complicated and, you know, Blaze G, simple. And people or, or pronounce it G. wrong. Kind just like, G. <laughs> just going down to one letter. I that's people do that to me all the time. I was E for a long time. That's true. I'm B a lot. So yeah. Uh, they don't call me D. I get the extra two letters at least. You're three letters. It's, yeah. You don't have to go well, you you'd think you wouldn't have to go from three letters to one, but then there's the people calling me E. So Actually, you know what? There is someone who calls me D, now that I think about it. Old family friend. I'm not sure why. It's really strange. He so. thinks you're a d- Probably. <laughs> most, most likely. That's, that's the only explanation, right? It's like one of my dad's I'm friends. Sorry. He's known me since I was a little sorry. kid, so he knows. <laughs> We've already gone off out. the rails, and we haven't even gotten to the first item. Let's, sorry, back to the rundown. Sorry. Yeah, you know what? I'm not going to tell everybody what we're going to talk about. It's going to be a surprise uh, as we Ooh, go. Big, big flying surprises. Blind. Yeah, flying blind. Blame me. Well, we have two new prospects up for the Mariners. We saw the debuts of both Jared Kelnick and Logan Gilbert on Thursday night. And we talked about Kelnick and projections back on the Wednesday show. You know, they let him off, which is pretty cool and kind of makes me excited about them just doing the simple right thing of maximizing his playing time as opposed to burying him in the bottom part of the order and making him earn a spot that's higher up. Yeah, I think just having more plate appearances will be awesome. It, it shows a lot of faith in him, which is good. It won't be a deal where uh, he starts hopefully dropping the lineup or not playing every day or whatever. They're, they're, they're putting him in and plugging and playing, basically. I also uh, hope that this means maybe a little bit of uh, patience for him. And I would say that, uh, I don't know, the returns were a little bit mixed. I don't think he looked overmatched, but... Um, I don't, he, he did reach a, a fair amount and I would like to see, uh, him kind of take to that leadoff role and be more patient because he's had different walk rates in the minors, you know? So it's, it's an open question of how patient he's going to be. Yeah, I agree. He didn't look overmatched. He just looked like a rookie, very jittery. And I think it was his second at bat guys, that second strike call borderline, a veteran hitter probably gets that call and then it kind of forced him to be aggressive and to to chase pitches outside the zone. So I think, you know, part of it's going to come with time. Uh, part of it's just going to come with experience in the league, knowing the strike zone, getting those borderline calls. Uh, but I think there was a lot to like about it. If not for that spectacular play by Josh Naylor, he'd already have a hit. So I thought it was a an encouraging night for a guy who, as Derek, I think, mentioned off air, makes Seattle infinitely more watchable than they were uh even a week ago, even a day ago, they're, 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 they're now, is pretty bad. Offense, they almost got no hit anyway. <laughs> For the second time in what, eight days? Um, yeah, it's yeah, they're not great, but at least they're 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 bad watchable. We've talked about this before on the show, right? They're entertaining. They're right. 
I thought they both settled down a little bit. They, it is interesting to think about the jitters. Do you, can you remember? I think you tweeted about the first the first day, your first interview. Yes. Your first day in the clubhouse. And I'm thinking about just how, like, I still feel like a rookie a fair amount. Like, because there's so many sort of unwritten rules and, oh, you shouldn't do that. And you can't stand there and all this stuff. I'll still find out, like, oh, I'm not supposed to be here right now. And then, then COVID <laughs> just made it worse. So you're like, I'm not, I'm in the wrong place. I'm doing the wrong thing. But like I just remember, um, I was I was allowed to have a field pass as a blogger at um, for the Mets. They had like a a day where you could just be on the field, and I was asking players as they came out in the field to talk to me, and they all said no. And so the first like the it was all rejection. Like the first day was all like no, 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 and I was like, oh god, this is gonna be terrible. And then Lucas Duda said yes, and I was like, oh oh okay, uh uh uh. <laughs> And I and I stumbled through some questions, and he's like a lovable guy, but pretty boring. Um, but you know, not a bad way to break in, I guess. You know, at least a nice guy. Uh, you didn't give me great answers or anything, but like a nice guy that didn't uh, didn't uh, take me to task. And uh, I just remember being like, I, I like you saw it a little bit in Logan Gilbert, right? Like the first couple of innings, I was like, oh, buddy, can I just uh, give you a hug? Yeah. <laughs> I kind of felt yeah. like Gilbert was trying really hard to control his emotions. You'd see him walk yes. off at the end of the inning and his face, Doing it wasn't, and... it was just kind of like, it was tightness, right? It, mm-hmm. And he was trying to keep himself from getting too amped up, most likely. I, I imagine that's the feeling you get, right? You could see it. Mm-hmm. Kelnick's got a lot of movement in his swing and his stance anyway. Like when you watch him get in the box, like he's he's moving around quite a bit. Batting stance guy kind of nailed that, by the way. Uh, but with Gilbert... I almost wondered if he was overthrowing a lot of his pitches early on, too, because he's known for having good command, and his command did not look very good for most of that debut. And I wouldn't wouldn't ever take a pitcher who shows shaky command in his debut and say, yep, that's it, that's the problem. I think this is a guy that's going to settle in fairly quickly, both, both of these guys. I think they're up for good, barring some catastrophic failure, and I don't really see either one of them in their profiles having a lot of risk that would make me think that they're headed back to Tacoma anytime soon. I think this is going to be two, two long-term fixtures for this Mariners team. As far as the watchability index on the West Coast, Dodgers and Angels are kind of battling with the Padres for the top spot, right? Like The Padres are probably first. The Angels, because of Otani, maybe have passed the Dodgers. And then you've got it's like Seattle kind of in the, the second I mean, I tier, but the they're Giants moving up. And they're, in, they're in first place or whatever, but I don't think that they're winning the watchability battle. I'm sorry. <laughs> no. Fans. Just not when you've got all these stars. Like they're all kind of like 29 years old and okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, just the, the stuff and, and location plus numbers came through on on Gilbert just to pass those along. The slider, the harder breaking ball that he had, it was like kind of 84 and had like a little bit more sideways movement. Uh, that was his best pitch by stuff plus 110. Uh, his four seam fastball was average. Um, and it the model really did not like that loopy curveball that he threw. That's the one that, that was, Fran Mill Reyes hit out, right? I think so. Yeah. yeah. I think that's the one that Fran Mill hit. The one that was kind of like 75 to 77, 79 in there, and it went like more 12 to 6. Uh, that has like a 67 stuff plus. In terms of location plus, he did really well on the slider and the four-seam fastball, but also uh, not so great on the knuckle curve. So, yeah, I think there could be some nerve action there where, um, you know, I'm, I was a little surprised by some of the velo readings. Like, I know that he's added velo, but like he was sitting 97 and stuff. And yeah. 
Um, I kind of feel like he's going to settle in maybe at 95 and maybe better command. Yeah, the, the, the nerves are real. Britt, you've seen some debuts over the years. I mean, plenty of debuts, right? Do you see a pretty clear difference in the first start for a pitcher versus even just the second one? Yeah, and you know, you nailed it. The velocity tick up is a big one. These guys are like shaking. I've seen guys throw it to the backstop their first, you know, like just they're that amped up. Um, especially pitchers, I think. Hitters, once you get that first at bat out of the way, I think it's a little bit easier to to concentrate maybe to like zone in. But if you're a pitcher, you're not used to the stadium. You're not used to everybody focusing on you. I mean, you guys have been to a minor league game. There's a huge difference between the crowd and the atmosphere. So I think for pitchers. Half the crowd at the minor league game is just there for like the food and like they're barely watching the game. The beer line is longer a lot of times than like the ticket line. So, yeah, I, I do think that for pitchers it's a lot worse. But hitters certainly too. I think, you know, had Kelnick gotten a hit, I think he would have been more relaxed, right? Those guys who get the first hit and the first at bat, it's like, oh, okay, it's off. Like, I can do this. Once you get your mm-hmm. first one out of the way, guys talk about that all the time. But your first hit, your first home run, you're like, okay, I'm good. I'm here now. Uh, because so many guys have that fear of, will it translate? Whether they actually tell you that they have that fear or not, they all kind of have that little fear in the back of their heads. So both these guys in Seattle are going to be fine. They're both legit. Uh, I expect Kelnick will get off the schneid here sooner rather than later, but... I agree on the watchability. And honestly, unless Otani is pitching, I don't think the Angels are quite as watchable because their pitching is so bad. Yes, they have some much-watched players, but it's more like, let me flip to Mike Trout's at bat than let me watch nine innings of an Angels game. Yeah. I don't know. I struggle with that because I, when I look at the individual players, I think that their pitching is okay. Like Bundy, uh, Otani, uh, Haney uh Cobb like like it seems like it's okay and then even in the, in the bullpen it must be like their fifth starter you know Quintana and their sixth starter like Sandoval or something and then and their middle relief that, that must be the, what's been doing them in I, I honestly think they should be better this is like the fourth time in a row year wise where I'm like the Angels look okay and then I'm like why are they bad <laughs> <laughs> well, Bundy, I think I saw some stats that said that like Bundy is a victim of a lot of bad luck too. Like his stats aren't terrible, like you said, but I think he's actually pitching a little bit better even than some of the stats would suggest. That's something you might want to look into. I saw that recently. Um, I want to forget exactly what it was, but he's definitely a guy who I agree. Like it, it was, he was their opening day starter. Like he's their guy there and he's pitching better than he ever did in Baltimore with less stuff. And I spoke to Dave Wallace, a longtime pitching coach and who was in Baltimore for a while. And he mentioned Gossman and Bundy and how guys kind of evolve. And I know we're going to talk about Jack Flaherty a little bit later in the show. But I think sometimes we get so caught up in the numbers that we also don't realize what goes between the ears and how big of a deal it is to just learn how to pitch at this level. And that's what Dylan Bundy has done. Not with the stuff he had in Baltimore, but he's a better pitcher now in Anaheim, I think, than he ever was. Yeah, I, I think he has basically the same strikeout rate as last year, the same walk rate as last year, the same ERA estimators as last year. And last year he had a 3-3 three, three ERA, and this year he has a 5 ERA. So I, I agree that there's uh, some luck there. You could look at something like strand rate where, you know, normally 70% of the people on base um, are stranded there, don't score. And for him, it's 60%. Yeah. So there's there's definitely some luck stuff there. And I, I just, I like sometimes I like to like not look at the numbers and just be like, what do like what do I think? Like what do I think of this of this rotation? If you told me you had Bundy, Haney, and Otani as your top three and Cobb as your four, I'd be like, 
you're probably okay. It's not like a league leading thing, but if your offense is good, and then if you tell me about the offense and be like, I have Trout, I have Fletcher, who's like a contact god. Yeah. I have Otani. Rendon. You know, Rendon. Rendon. Upton. I'd be like, then you're probably okay. I, I, I would say that you're like, at least, I would say you're probably headed for like 86 wins. I mean, you look and at the teams. Instead, they're, they're 16 and 20. Yeah, you look at the teams that are in last place right now. The Angels, the Tigers, the Orioles, the Nationals, the Pirates, and the Rockies. The Angels, and to a lesser degree, the Nats, the two you look at and go, they're probably not last place teams. The Nats could be. We've talked about their flaws a bit over the course of the season. But the Angels, I'd be shocked if they stayed in last place. Rendon's missed time with a couple of injuries, and getting him back helps. One more great bat in the offense, one more great glove on the field, better than the too. Rangers and Mariners. Easily. Right? I know. Like, <laughs> easily. Like, the Angels, to me, were a sleeper to win the division. Like, that wasn't an outlandish prediction going into the season, so I would still hold out some hope. They're only four below 500 in the middle of May. It, it's not as bad as, like, the twin situation. They're 11, or, yeah, 11 below 500 now after losing yeah. to the White Sox on Thursday. I mean, that's that's a bad situation. And they uh, have an actual, like, I don't know if it's, if it's like, a, a, a in-stone flaw, but, like, their pitching is a problem. Their inherited runners are a problem, too. Like, their inherited runners yeah. are off the chain bad. And uh, Levine, the other day, was was going on Twins Radio. And, and, you know, my friend Derek Wetmore does a great job with that. And he kind of pointed to how they're unlucky in a lot of facets. But what I took away from that was even if they were lucky, if you reverse some of those, like, unlucky trends, they're 500 team. That's still a massive undersell this team was built to win the division right i picked them to win the division if not finish second um taking the luck factors out and saying yay we'd be 500 like that's still not good that's not anything to hang your hat on and i actually think there's stuff to look back on and be like oops you should have spent more money on pitching you know like oops because look at this by war they are 29th Oh, my bold prediction that the Chicago Cubs would not be worse than a division for pitching is uh, even worse than I thought. The Cubs are 30th. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Stay hot. The bet on non-velocity stuff not looking well, good six whole, weeks let, in. Let me, see, let me see. Does it get any better if I just do starters? No, they're last. <laughs> they're, they're replacement level as starters. They have zero war. Uh, okay, yeah, let's move on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's brutal. I think with the Twins, it, Barrios has pitched well. Hap hasn't. Pineda's been actually lucky, giving up home runs, missing bats, and keeping the walk rate kind of close to his career norms, but has a legit home run problem that has not surfaced in the actual results yet, so his ratios could be going the other way. We've talked about Maeda on this show. Massive home run fine. issues, K-rate down, but... I think his my stuff is still there. I, I think he gets back to being high threes, low fours, ERA, Kenta Maeda. I don't think he goes back to being 2020 Kenta Maeda because yeah, he couldn't get back to that level. It's almost impossible to do that over a full season. So they're not totally screwed, but they're definitely in trouble. And I, I would look at them as a team that has has to get on a really nice run sooner rather than later if they're going to start justifying making improvements to this roster once we get to the deadline in a couple of months. I would feel so much better about them if, like, Jordan Balaslovich or like one of these young pitchers they had was like, um, you know, top three pitching prospect esque and like was ready to step in. Because when I do that thing where I'm not looking at the stats and I say, okay, Barrios, Maeda, Pineda, Hap. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're making a very uncomfortable face right now. Yeah, I, I, like I, I almost take the Angels rotation over that. 
Ooh. You, you know, know Barrios will be better yeah. on the front end. What? Uh, I think you should write a not stats article because I think it'd be very un <laughs> uneno esque. <laughs> yeah, sometimes sometimes I just go with my gut. Yep. Sometimes you do. We had a question come in about Luis Castillo. So he kind of fits into this underperformers to worry about. He had a start at Coors on Thursday night. That's usually not a place where a pitcher off to a slow start is going to get well. And yes, the bad start for Luis Castillo got worse. The question specifically that came in from Ryan, there were actually two, is the command plus score on his fastball and slider worse than last season? And if it's a mechanical issue for Castillo, is it something that you think can be fixed mid-season? We previously discussed them on the show. It was because the velocity was down early in the year, but opening day in Cincinnati was like 42 degrees. So uh, hardly optimal conditions for a hard-throwing starter like Castillo. Uh, now that we've had a little more time to look at him, you know, are you starting to see legitimate drops in the command plus numbers? Not really. Um, the the four seam fastball is average, and every other pitch is above average by command plus. Um, I do think that stuff has been the issue. And yesterday's seventy degree start at Coors was the warmest start that he's pitched in. So if you look at his stuff numbers, they were actually rising until the last two starts. So. I still have some hope for him. I don't know that I call him in like an unqualified by low, but if you just look at his pitches uh, separately, the changeup is still above average. The location is still good on all four of his pitches. Uh, the slider is still around average. And if he can just get that fastball velocity uh, back up, I think uh, he has a chance to be good again. Interesting. I too do, do my best work in 70 degrees. <laughs> <laughs> I, i've come to really appreciate the the low 60s i think a 62 degree day is just about perfect because then you get to evening get to have a nice fire outside in the backyard throw on a sweatshirt i stay comfortable all day i can run at 62 degrees and not feel disgusting i don't know that's my optimal temperature since everybody's asking and sharing uh optimal running temperatures uh, got a question that came in about jack flaherty this one's interesting just because People have always kind of said, is Jack Flaherty really an ace? And Steve writes, Flaherty seems to outperform his stuff and command numbers. Any idea why? My first thought is, we were just talking about this with some of the Angels pitchers, Dylan Bundy being a bit unlucky. Sometimes we get fixated on the ERA indicators, the fielding independent pitching metrics, which are good in terms of distilling a pitcher's actual skills. However... Baseball is not a fielding independent game. There is a defense that plays behind Jack Flaherty, and that defense happens to be very good. It's been pretty much a top five defense for his entire career. So I would say if you have a guy who is consistently pitching in front of a defense that good, you are setting yourself up at least with one possible path to outperform a bunch of different metrics. What about the Yadier Molina factor too? I don't think people realize when you have a catcher, not saying he can turn everybody into an ace, but I do think he can help separate. I do think he can help guys. You know, he can get borderline calls. I, do, I, I think there's a lot of trust there. I think you can't quantify with numbers everything that a guy like Molina brings to that staff. And also having a guy like Wainwright on staff who speaks his mind, never doesn't speak his mind, is a guy who wants the ball no matter what. We can all admit that his best days are behind him as a pitcher, However, he's still got that bulldog mentality. He reminds me a lot of Max Scherzer. 
And I think for Flaherty, you know, having the defense, as you mentioned, having Molina, and then just having it between the ears, as we talked about earlier in the show, it's one thing to have the stuff. And we've seen cases like this before where guys seem to have it all. They can't miss guys and they can't put it together at the big league level. So as much as we can quantify things, we still can't really quantify guys who just know how to pitch. And I think Jack Flaherty's one of those guys. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And also the park, you know, it's like he's in a very comfortable situation. You know, that home park is uh, probably like t- almost tied now with San Francisco after the changes as being the most pitcher friendly. So, you know, I he's the kind of character, he kind of reminds me of Patrick Corbin, where like when he's in the situation, I like him, but I wouldn't necessarily pony up a ton of money to take him out of that situation, hmm. you know, as a free agent, because then he loses Yadier, then he loses the home park. And now you're, you're getting a fastball slider guy with, you know, on the tail end of how good the fastball is. The other thing that comes to mind is he has an excellent slider and an excellent fastball. The command plus is good on both of them on those two pitches. And the, the, the stuff plus is very good on the, on the slider. So I, I think that is actually a, like very important for a modern pitcher to have a very good slider. That's one. That's one of the things I'm, I'm taking away from Gilbert is he has good command and a good slider, and at least he has that. You know, yeah. like that's I think the foundation almost for any pitcher. And if you look at any pitcher that has two pitches and is overperforming, Waskari Inoa, uh, even Michael Pineda. You know, there's, there's, I think there's a lot of, exa- even Kenta Maeda, like, yes, he has a lot of pitches, but he has a slider. His slider is his best pitch and it's his best pitch by stuff and command. And what, how did he break out? He just started throwing the slider a ton. So I think this is a slider league and Jack Flaherty is one of the best sliders in the big leagues. And so that's, that's almost all the story you have to tell. And I know that like, yeah, if you look at some ERA estimators, or you look at strikeouts minus walks, you, know, you could be like, Hey, he's not this good. I think he's a low threes guy. He might have a, a couple of bad starts in him, but you know, I think this is who he is. You guys would both agree that you expect him to continue outperforming the ERA indicators for all these different factors. Yachty, the defense behind him, the park. Like this is this is a sustainable beats the advanced number sort of guy with the skills that he has and with those factors that we're talking about. Uh yeah, I think so. I don't, I don't think this is a case of like a rookie having like this crazy stretch that we know is going to somehow kind of fade. I like Jack Flaherty. I think what Eno said, he's not like this super impressive guy. I wouldn't draft him as an ace to build around on a team, but he's a guy who I'd like among my 25. I think he's a good clubhouse guy. He's a guy who speaks his mind. I think he's got a good presence. So yeah, I, th- I think it'll probably continue. Maybe not at this rate, but I think he'll continue to outperform some of his stats. Well, we got we got we got almost 500 innings, and he's got a 3270 RA. That's like I, I'm feeling pretty good about like that's sort of where he is. Yeah, so a really good two if he doesn't meet your qualifications for you know what constitutes an ace. I think at this point, very sustainable skills and another good start to the season here for Jack Flaherty. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right. If you've been watching baseball Twitter at all and reading The Athletic in recent days, you might be surprised to see that there are members of the Yankees, both on the coaching staff and actual members of the team, missing time due to COVID. And it's particularly confusing because this is a team that reached that 85% threshold for uh, you know reduced restrictions going forward and it's led to a whole mess of different questions and Lindsay Adler did a great job breaking it all down explaining who's been impacted how they think this happened you know what's going to happen next the Yankees have kind of said publicly like we're a case study right now we're trying to figure out what's going on just like everybody else so Britt, how surprised were you to see this, knowing what you know about how teams gather, how they operate, how the restrictions have been changed, and did you expect something along these lines to occur, even with a vaccinated team, or did this catch you as off guard as it caught me? Yeah, I was shocked, Um, and I hope it doesn't ruin it for in terms of rules being relaxed, because we need to get there. Um, We are still on Zoom only. Uh, The CDC has said that you can wear no masks if you're vaccinated indoors or outdoors, yet the reporters were still not allowed near players. So my first thought was, oh, God, we're never going to get on a field again. Uh, but I think when you look at it closely and you see like some of the threads from people way smarter than me who deal with this stuff, you realize that this was going to happen um, at some point. It's just baseball is set up perfectly for it to happen because, you know, if somebody gets it, they're all stuck in these little rooms. I think I saw somewhere that there was a rain delay. So the coaches would have all been gathered inside in this room during a rain delay. Like, okay, now I can see how it happened. But for me, it doesn't change how I feel about being vaccinated and moving forward. I don't know about you guys, but that's that's how I feel. Yeah, I think this actually this is actually really awkward, I think, because, you know, I think we I think we're gonna a lot of us are gonna get it. Like if I think that like after we get vaccinated, if we got tested every day, like baseball players, a lot of us would be surprised, be like, like what? I'm vaccinated, I have it. And the, I think the idea for the most part is like I was telling my kids stay on the walk, it's like your body is practicing, right? For the next time it gets this, right? And so the next time it gets this, it's like, oh yeah, we got the play, we got the plays already. We get we get we know how to we know how to deal with this. And so I think it's actually okay. This New York thing is not that devastating to me because all of them but one were asymptomatic. And so what you're saying is that probably the one that was symptomatic did give it to the rest of them, right? Because you kind of you, you need to be symptomatic on some level. You need to have a viral load in order to sort of give it to other people. And so what you're ha- what you're finding out is like, if you are symptomatic after you've been vaccinated, then you should put a mask on and then you should go get tested. But if you're not symptomatic, the only, only going to know about the baseball players because they get tested every day. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's, it's, uh, it's kind of awkward because I think if those people were in real life, seven of the eight of them would still be at work and it'd be okay. They wouldn't be passing it on to other people and, and they would be living life. But because we're kind of like still have the old rules in place, they have to stop playing baseball. 
and st- and stop coaching. And they have to do it for ten days, even though they're they're probably not they're probably not gonna spread it to anybody. So um, it, this is and I, I'm not trying. I there might be somebody who's mad at me already uh, for saying the things I've said. I think this is just gonna be is just indicative of how difficult it will be to open up. And I have sympathy for anybody who is mad that the CDC said that we could take masks off over vaccinated. I understand that it's going to be tough because you don't know that everybody's vaccinated and, and people who are not vaccinated are going to take their masks off. Um, and that sucks. But mostly if you're vaccinated, you're like the, the likelihood you go to the hospital from this is very, very low, like extremely tiny. And, and I do think there is an impetus on us to open up and, and to go back to, to something normal ish. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so I don't know. I think that this is just a microcosm of what we're going to be dealing with everywhere. As we try to open up, we try to be, you know, post vaccinated society. Yeah. It's just a, th- there will be some setbacks along the way. I think the thread that Zach Binney, who has been quoted in a few pieces on the athletic, his thread kind of explaining what happened and, what it really means. I think that helped put my mind at ease a little bit. I mean, you have to consider that for the most part, it worked the way it was supposed to. And Glaber Torres is just such a strange case because he had the virus and was fully vaccinated. And now he's unavailable at least for a little while. It seems like they're a little unclear about the full scope of a positive test at this point and whether or not a player has to be out for 10 days. That's still pending. It's the kind of thing that the league at some point We'll figure out, okay, actually, a couple negative tests in this situation, it's safe for a player to return. Like, there's still some of this that is being learned as we go because the science has moved so fast throughout this entire process. And this is our first you know, pandemic like this that has changed everything about day to day life for us that any of us have really ever dealt with. Yeah, there is some leeway in the rules for the commissioner to, to, to kind of make a decision. And I wonder if that leeway will allow him to consider how symptomatic a player is, for example, um, and uh, and consider that if they're vaccinated and asymptomatic, perhaps they're allowed to, to get back on the field quicker. Yeah, so hopefully things are headed in the right direction. I believe I saw on Thursday it was the first day with no new positive test for the Yankees. So it does seem like things are trending back in the right direction. And you remember back to when, like the Marlins, like the in like the first time when everything was going bad. Remember how bad that felt? Where like the Marlins, and we were like, baseball's done. Do you remember you get? Remember getting texts from people? Like, did you get any of these texts, Britt? I got texts from like AGMs and stuff where they were like, "Yeah, we're done. Yeah, like, like this is over." Mm-hmm. And there yeah. were like three or four games that were canceled one in one slate. One yep. day, mm-hmm. and that's when I. That's when everyone was like, "God, we're done." And if, I really do think that if like one more team had had a breakout, we might have had like at least like a two or three week. You know, everyone stopped playing baseball. Um, but we we, we kind of got through it, and I kind of think that this is the the new version of that, where we're gonna have a couple breakouts like this, where they you know they're vaccinated but asymptomatic, and we're just gonna have to figure out how to get through it. Yeah, I remember those uh, those early season Fridays from uh, last year when we were doing this pod. It just felt like the sky was falling each week a little bit more. And while this is a setback, it seems like a relatively small one based on the outcomes that we've seen to this point. 
Uh, Britt, you wrote up a kind of a notebook piece that had a few interesting things in it this week. And the Astros did something good. And one thing we've talked about a lot on this show. Uh, uh, yeah, well, I, you, know, it, you gotta get credit for if you do something good, it should be recognized as something good. So the Astros have actually covered the cost of housing, provided housing for their minor leaguers, which people listening might be saying, wait, that's not covered. And if you think about a minor leaguer possibly being promoted multiple times in a year and the logistics of having a place to live, usually you're going to live with roommates, multiple other players, probably more players than you should have in a one or two bedroom apartment. It's a logistical headache that most of us don't wrap our heads around, especially for guys that are making you know a few hundred dollars a week in some cases. So what do you think led the Astros to go ahead and do this? Because this is pretty unprecedented. Yeah. So here's the crazy thing, guys. Um, it was really hard to confirm this because I don't think the Astros wanted people to know. It, it's this positive thing. And they didn't want to comment on it. Uh, reached a few people. It took me for I heard about this from other minor leaguers because they were like, hey, they were did you see? Yeah. Did you see what's going on in Houston? And for a while, nobody in Houston would tell me if it was true. And I'm like, well, I can't run with this unless somebody actually tells me. You know, it doesn't matter. So that, that means yeah. that means they think it's a like it's a it's it's an advantage. It's not something they're doing out of the goodness of their hearts. They think this is like a, a tactical advantage. I think so. And then I also think I also wonder is ownership or the front office worried that other teams are going to be mad at them because now they're pressured to do the right thing, right? So I thought that you maybe, curve breakers, yeah. Maybe that was another thing, too. Like, how dare you pay for these guys to live in furnished <laughs> apartments? Like, they need to slum it. But the problem is, as you mentioned, Derek, so with COVID this year, you can't have, like, six guys in a one bedroom. Like, I talked to a lot of different guys, and most of them have one person that's in their pod that they room with on the road that they're allowed to live with at home. And so that's it. If you have a family, if you have a wife, guess what? They cannot stay with you in your hotel, in your pod on the road. So the whole situation isn't great. Finally, yesterday, they relaxed the rules. Same thing as big leagues. They relaxed the rules for vaccinated minor league players. But I hope this becomes the norm because if you can furnish an apartment for them and take away having to find a lease, having to break a lease, which ruins your credit score when you go up and down or you get hurt or you traded. get demoted, traded, like there's all these things that play into it. So having this the security of, okay, I know where I'm living and I can use the money I make for food and utilities training. and training and my family and other things because they only get paid five months out of the year also. So getting these teams to pay for the lodging for really this year is four months, right? It's one one month less, even though they're getting paid that month still this year. So four months. Yeah, it's of, not as amazing as it sounds at first. It's, yeah. not, tw- it's not 12 months. <laughs> so I honestly, I hope other teams do feel pressured to do this because I think it should be the bare minimum. You got rid of 40 affiliates. Yes, you're paying them a little bit more, but I bet the money equals out because you got rid of 40 affiliates. So there's a lot less players. So I hope this becomes something that we're not like, yay, Astros. And it's great. It's great PR. It's great. It's awesome. The Astros are doing it. I hope every team does it though. And they're like, wait, why aren't we doing this too? It's it's well, it's so simple. Yeah. It's just one more really kind of significant pressure you're putting on every one of your minor league players that they don't need. If you think about it from even just a cynical point of view, which I'm not always trying to go the cynical route, but (laughs) 
if you just want your players to perform better and to get good rest and not be constantly stressed about money and logistics, this is one way to do that. And this is one way to increase player performance. This is one way to make happier people, happier employees in this case. So it seems like a relatively small thing. It, it, obviously, teams can afford to pull this off, but so much more control. I, I think this is kind of back to the way minor league players eat too, right? If, if you owned a team, wouldn't you want everybody who was in your organization to eat good, healthy meals every day? Wouldn't you want to invest in that? It's kind of the same sort of thing where it's just like, hey, look, you're a member of our organization. We can take care of you. We will take care of you because we want you to thrive. We want to make you as healthy and productive as you can possibly be. And it's the same as with you know, minor league travel not being fun at all, like the long bus rides. And one of the few silver linings about the minor league shrinking and some of the changes they made to the schedule, it is less rigorous travel compared to what we're used to having longer series before you jump back on the bus and head to the next town. So small steps, baby steps in the right direction. And yeah, my best guess as to why the Astros wouldn't want anyone to know, there's actually two. One, they don't intend to do this forever. So they didn't want to, they didn't want it to be known that they're taking it away if they're going to take it away later. Or two, they see it and they're like, actually, we found that when our players sleep and don't worry about these things, that they're more productive and then we can we can get them through the minor leagues faster or we can trade them because their performance is better and it's good for us that way. They they are a super tech and data savvy team. Um, they have these things called uh, Ura. I don't even know how to say it. I've just seen it. Uh, th- these like rings. You know what I'm talking about, Britt? Uh, have you seen them wear these rings? Uh-uh. They, they're these rings that, 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 that track your sleep schedule. Okay, so they're um, like whoops. What's it called? It's like a it's like a whoop band. So it's the same thing. Yeah, yeah. There's whoop, and then there's like an aura. Is like the is like a ring, um, and it'll track your sleep schedule, your heart rate, and certain stuff, and 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 download it to an app. Um, and if they were doing that, um, you know, in some sort of rigorous way, and then realized, oh, the guys who have uh, who live like six in a in a pod or whatever, they're all like sleep deprived, and all the guys who uh, had the like six hundred the, the the big uh, the six hundred thousand or million dollar uh, signing bonuses, and and have like an apartment, uh, they they all have way better sleep cycle numbers. Uh, they could they, there could have been sort of a data way into this. There could they could have actually sort of spotted something and just been like, oh yeah, this makes a lot of sense, and and a lot of times. These things pay for themselves. If you, if you think about it, like uh, having a cost-controlled reliever for the first like four, the like, three years of his of his deal, right? He costs one point five million dollars. Imagine uh, you created one Edwin Diaz out of this. You know, like imagine that, like like somebody who was like poorly sleeping poorly and just wasn't any good and just fell out of the uh, fell out of the organization and never went anywhere versus that guy slept well and ended up in as an Edwin Diaz right that is enough to pay for all of the housing just mm-hmm. finding one Edwin Diaz is enough to pay for all of the housing for all of the other guys for the whole all of the years that Edwin Diaz was in the minor leagues so if you think that if you've run some numbers and you think that doing this will create at least one player, uh, then it's going to be worth all the numbers. Yeah. So motivation, you know, aside, just if there's a reason for teams to do this, I actually don't even care what it is because it seems like something that would really help players a lot. So kudos to the Astros, things I did not think I would be saying, words that I didn't think I would put together for a very long time. All right. 
We had an email come in from loyal listener OJ, and uh, as I mentioned earlier, he, it was titled, well, he, he said in the first line, he has a quarrel with us. Uh, loves the show, so yeah, I'm glad we're... Actually, I think I do have the answer for the, the what happens with a quarrel. How do you end a quarrel? A duel. Oh, jeez. <laughs> I hope it doesn't come to that. Hopefully we can diffuse the situation before it actually becomes pistols at dawn with OJ, because... Uh, I think OJ's emails are insightful. I think he's a consistent supporter of the show. So I would really hate to end up in a dual situation with him, really with anyone, but with OJ specifically. You have besmirched my name, OJ. Besmirched. There's only one way out of this. Things are escalating real quickly around here. Uh, so the email reads as follows. As I mentioned, it started with the compliment. As always, I enjoy your podcast immensely, but I do have a quarrel. First, you guys seem pretty harsh about the Angels cutting Albert Pujols, even though he has something like a negative war over the last six years. I get that it could have been done differently, but it seems like the elephant in the room is that guys will justifiably try to squeeze every day they can uh, uh, out of those contracts that strangle teams who shouldn't have offered them to begin with. Everyone has also buried the Red Sox for not signing Mookie and Cleveland for not signing Francisco Lindor to similarly awful deals. Suppose we give Mookie the benefit of the doubt and say he's going to stay as productive as Joe Morgan, a similar-ish player, but one who stayed at second base. We'll even give Mookie that renaissance year that Morgan had in 1982. Are the first few great years enough to justify paying Mookie so much during the extended decline? And does it make any sense to pay Lindor for that twilight when he's an average four-war player for this early part of his career. Just curious how much you guys think a team should pay for the good, knowing that they're on the hook for a whole lot of bad. He also offered up Nomar Garcia Parra as a potential Francisco Lindor comp. So I think our beef, just to, again, try to defuse the situation and avoid pistols at dawn, I think our biggest beef wasn't that they got rid of Pujols. It was that they didn't have an obvious upgrade for their lineup to call up at the time that they did it, right? A healthy Brandon Marsh or the promotion of Joe Adele, I think all three of us would say that probably makes them immediately better. But when you call up John Jay and no disrespect to John Jay, you're not making your team better. So the timing was just really bizarre from that regard. But I think I was going to say, I think we all agree though, that it was time for pools, relatively speaking to go. They didn't need to keep them around if they were going to contend. Yeah, and I and I think I, I my beef is a little bit about uh, giving the player uh, room for like celebration, um, and sort of allowing him to do the kind of go gently into the night tour that we've seen from other players. I mean, uh, I guess this is where COVID might have been a problem here because I think the best case scenario would be sometime in September last year. Let's say we all had fans at every stadium, then tell telling him we're not re-upping you next year. Like, we're going to DFA you in the offseason. But we're going to tell you now so that we can, if you're cool with it, we can do a bunch of celebration stuff. We can have Albert Pujols night uh, at the park the last night of the season. And you can have, and we'll talk to other PR departments. And if maybe when, maybe we're in St. We're in St. Louis in a week, you know, we can do a thing in St. Louis, you know, that sort of deal. And because of COVID, you couldn't really do that same thing. So maybe they should have done that two years ago. It would have been okay. Like in 2019, it might've been all right to say, we're going to DFA you in the offseason. That's how bad he's been. It's like two, three years running. They could have said this um, and could have set it up differently. So that's that's been my main thing. It's not uh, not getting rid of him. And then to the larger point about uh, players, I think if you get uh, six, seven, eight wins, like if you get like six wins or seven wins out of a player uh, in the first few years, 
then it is worth it. Because not only does that change how they age, it means that you get a, an all-star, you get a superstar, and that is worth everything because you only have 25 or 26 roster slots. So if you can fit six wins into a spot there, that is so much better than having three two-win guys, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and that means a lot more to, like, the Dodgers and the Yankees and, and like, the Mets, the team the Mets thought they were building, which is, like... We need a star here because we can we can we can get lots of two and three win players. We have lots of those, but we really need a six win player, and so we're going to pay up front. And if he gets six wins, aging says it'll age and he'll be he'll still be an average player at the end. I think that's what they thought they were getting. And I maybe Lindor's only a three to four win player, in which case that deal will turn out to be pretty poor. Uh, but I don't think the Mookie deal is looking as bad. Damn! Don't quarrel with Eno. That was that's good. That, <laughs> no, I, have nothing, I, I, have nothing I agree with a lot of his points. I agree with all his points. I mean, what, which which of the deals? Like, do you, would you do you think the Betts or Lindor deals were like? Did they stick out right away to you, Britt? Or like, no. do you think do you think that do I think either of them are bad now? No, and from Poolho- the team perspective. No, and Poolhouse deal is an old regime deal. It's like the A Rod deal. Like it, we used to pay people based off of past performance, and clubs knew those last few years would be painful. Same thing with Miguel Cabrera. You know, when you sign those deals, they're gonna be painful in the end. That's kind of the old regime uh, that you were. Those paying. were older. Yeah, there were, were older players too, less dynamic players. You know, like thirty. I think they were thirty-two and thirty-three when they signed these long-term deals. Bad, bad idea. Yeah, and you were paying for past performance too, and that was the thing that that's the thing that needs to be obliterated in baseball. You're either going to pay them more when they're arb- under arbitration, right? You're going to pay them more when they're good, or you're going to pay them for their past like you you can't have it both ways right we can't decide hey we're going to stop paying guys because you know past 35 they're done right we're going to stop these contracts here well okay but you didn't pay and we're these also guys. only going to pay them five hundred thousand when they get to the major leagues and yeah. they're really good so you have this tiny window as a player and i think that's what's creating a lot of the issues with the union and the league now is okay uh if you want to pay these guys pay these guys but these guys used to be told Cash in when you become a free agent right off into the sunset, right? You can play till you're 38. You won't be very good the last few years, but it's okay because you are underpaid the first five years. But it doesn't make sense anymore. And that's why you look at a deal like Pulos and you have to remember that was an old regime contract. Those just don't happen anymore. Nobody does that anymore. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think Lindor, the hope is he gets it back on track. He's young enough. Uh, he's he's not. And, and he's like... He's very different than Pujols. He's like, you know, he's a, a shortstop, yeah. so he can play third. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of places, a lot of sort of bumps along the ugly tree that he can go down. <laughs> <laughs> the ugly tree, very nice. The, I mean, the thing we didn't see back at the time of, of Pujols' deal and similar contracts of that era, the closest thing we saw to it was the Evan Longoria contract, which is nothing compared to what Tatis just got from the Padres a few months back, and I think. When the Tatis deal happened, if I remember correctly, we said it's possible that he ends up being underpaid for the pro- the actual production that he provides the Padres over the life of the deal. It's actually very possible that he overperforms. And he was the it. youngest, most dynamic. Well, I don't know if most dynamic. Betts and Lindor are pretty dynamic, but at the time of the signing of the deal, the youngest and most dynamic. Right, yeah. but you're still taking considerable risk with anyone on a 14 year contract at 340 million. So. I think if this is the new adjustment, if we're no longer going to pay 
players for who they used to be on long-term deals, and instead we're going to maybe slightly underpay superstars, and that slight underpay is still 25 million AAV, and that's going to keep going up over time. That's a better place to be if those are my only two options because you don't have these awkward endings. You don't have these frustrations that that develop for players who were great. I think that was the saddest thing for me with Pujols was that people really started to just resent what is, what he got as a contract when he deserved it years before he actually got it. That was always the problem. So uh, hopefully we have uh, diffused the quarrel with uh, with OJ. Uh, well, it, it is awkward, though, because like if you look at Miguel Cabrera for the life of his, like for his baseball life. He's actually he's like produced value equal to his pay, right? Mm-hmm. And Pujols, just, I think, is above that. I think Pujols actually produced more value yeah. than he's actually paid over time. But it just the shape of it makes us think so differently about it. Mm-hmm. So it all comes back to getting the CBA right and getting players paid a lot earlier. I had not thought about Nomar as a, a comp for Lindor, and but the injury aspect and the and the power outage a little bit. I just think so much of our current view of Lindor is skewed by six slow weeks with his new team and not what we've seen from him since he broke into the league in 2015. Like, Look at the last six years instead of the last six weeks, and I think you feel quite a bit better about that long-term deal. And power is the thing you know least about in small samples, and right now he's got like a top 10 strikeout rate in baseball. So if he does bring the power back, he could have a great year. It's just, you know, the power is missing right now. All right. Well, thanks for the email, OJ. If you'd like to send us an email, ratesandbarrels at theathletic.com is the best way to do that. On Twitter, you can find Britt at Britt underscore Giroli. He is at Enoceris. I am at Derek Van Riper. If you don't have a subscription to The Athletic, you should get one. Theathletic.com slash ratesandbarrels, $3.99 a month gets you in the door. Hope everybody has a great weekend. Rates and Barrels is back on Monday. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.